We have a very, very special guest for this episode. Uh, we interviewed Mr. Jay Sewell, a multidisciplinary artist also known as Chip War. I think that uh, Jay is probably one of the most underrated artists. Uh, his work is inspiring and thought-provoking. Uh, quoting from one article, uh, Jay's internationally recognized work expresses much of the angst of today's indigenous population in Canada. In this episode, we discuss three pieces of his work and his journey to where he is today. Also, there may be some background noise in this episode because we were actually recording in his studio on Queen Street West. So there may be ambulances, people talking in the background in the studio or walking around. Um, and there's also a beeping of the security alarm of his shop. Uh, sorry in advance, and uh, we hope you enjoy the show. This is Postico Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Thank you, Jay, for uh, letting us come into your studio and uh, interview to you today. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, we really appreciate you taking time um, of your busy schedule. Um, so for like the listeners out there who have never heard of your work or heard of uh, Jipple War, um, would you be able to describe your art style? Well, um, I guess... I guess first and foremost, my artwork is um, pop art. Um, I'm heavily influenced by, um, you know, film and television and music and pop culture. So I've uh, I, I've basically taken pop culture icons and indigenized them. Um, and the the latest work I've been doing for the last you know three four years has been taking iconic um, iconic movie. Um, movie posters and indigenizing so taking a film like terminator and making it terminative um you know you take a you take an invasion of the body snatchers and it becomes invasion of the child snatchers um and it's just a way of i guess um creating a somewhat of a conversation about for one cultural appropriation of indigenous uh, arts um and then two i guess the misrepresentation of indigenous people in film and television and I and and also um, the lack of representation of indigenous people in film and television. Uh, very cool stuff. Um, before we kind of dig into your works, uh, could you tell us a bit about yourself, about your upbringing, um, about uh, where you grew up? Uh, well, I was uh, born in Windsor, Ontario. Um, my reserve of Chippewa the Thames is about um, uh, about two hours from Windsor. Uh, most people leaving my community will either end up in London, Ontario, um, Windsor, or Detroit. Uh, my mom, when she left the community, ended up in in uh, Windsor. Um, but uh, you know, I when I was around four, year, just four, going into five, we we're basically forcibly removed from my mother, put into a non-indigenous home. Um, well, first into foster care. Um, and then the Children's Aid Society basically gave my mother an ultimatum that either they, she puts us up for adoption or they will make us crown wards of the CAS, which um, and then they in turn threatened that uh, they, would, they would break us up, me and my two, my two siblings. Um, so that really devastated her and she really knew she had no options um, and chose adoption. And uh, her stipulation was that we had to be kept together. Um, and sorry, what year was this? This would have been about 1981. 1981. So that's only like 30 something years yeah. ago, right? Which essentially, you know, it would be classified as part of the 60s scoop because that, mm -hmm. uh, I guess their legal definition of that happened up until, until 91 or so, or 91 or two, I believe. Right. For the 60s scoop, has, has there ever been like any like, formal kind of like apology or kind of like um i guess you know there's the the class action lawsuit that's pending and mm -hmm. um i don't know if that in turn had any sort of apology but uh, I, I guess i imagine it would be right they're taking some sort of like legal responsibility for for it mm. um, right um talking about your work um so you have work in sculpting, like silkscreen printing, uh, installation work, music, street art, tattoos. It's this like giant portfolio. Um, 
it's so diverse uh did you always know that you were gonna be an artist like growing up is that always like something that was intrinsic like inside you um i don't you know one of my very first memories of like being in public school and like probably like grade two i don't know what we were doing like some sort of coloring exercise a coloring book type thing of like a care bear or something and somehow or another um I can't remember how it happened, but I ended up creating a, from the coloring book, this, um, not a coloring book, it was like on a piece of paper. And somehow, I don't know if I pressed too hard and then put another one on top of it, but it left this sort of uh, outline of mm-hmm. the Care Bear on this other page. Yeah. So I like flipped it over and I started like, you know, color redoing that, but I would, I sort of did it a little more, you know, well, little more imaginative to it and i remember this girl jill asked me he's like you know it's a silly thing but she was like are you going to be an artist when you grow up and i was like <laughs> when she asked me that i didn't even you know grade two i'm not you, you don't even really understand what you know anything about yeah. what you're gonna be when you grow up or what that even really means you know mm-hmm. i didn't even really understand that until you know my late teens early 20s uh you know oh shit that's what that meant when yeah. i grow up i gotta be something you know yeah. what, what what does that actually mean so it all started from Care Bears. It started from the coloring books and that. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I've, I worked for the last 18 years. I've worked in the tattoo industry. So my connection to art, you know, I have a long history of that. I worked in tattoo studios for about six years before I started tattooing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I tattooed for a better part of nine, ten years before I started actually painting. So I had some sort of... Um, uh, I don't know, I would say sort of like art school, not really art school training, but composition and coloring and all those things were sort of passed down to me by working with other tattoo artists. That's really how I got my um, start in in doing artwork. But you never had like any like actual formal education. It was working at tattoo parlors that kind of gave you your footing. Yeah, basically. I mean, I, I, I never finished high school I went as far as like grade nine I don't even think I got all of my grade nine credits or grade nine or ten I can't I mean Mm -hmm. it was I I never graduated high school I've never Mm -hmm. been to college or university and so all all of my education was you know I don't want to say self-taught but you know Mm because I worked with a lot of great artists and um all, all even all of my current work now I mean I have a great mentor who's who's taught me like you know 90% of what I know mm-hmm. so um I think like a lot of people stay in tattooing for a long time like maybe dabbling out but I feel like for you um you've really kind of exploded out from that like in your store the front part of it is all you know there's so many shirts there's so many designs there's many kind of like more multi-visual kind of experiences like where how did you make that jump into like you know a screen printing like because it, 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 it is kind of a jump right like not every tattoo artist you know makes this kind of giant leap right um you know i've actually known quite a few you know there's quite a few high profile tattoo artists who have, have made that jump um that i that i know of and i just for me it was after you know i was probably what like 14 years into the tattoo industry I got sort of just a little I got really burnt out and then I went through like um you know I went through something quite traumatic that really changed the course of my life and I I I closed both of my tattoo shops I took a year off um I kind of reassessed what I was doing and I kind of um that's really how I stumbled upon like doing art full time and just part of the burn of it of, of the tattoo industry and it became became part of the reason but it was also just the I felt like the limitations of tattooing and tattoo designs where you know they come in trends so you're doing a lot of the same things over and over clients are coming in to get the same sort of things like I was you know I'm I have a very short attention span so I got I got bored with those things but as to the screen printing thing uh, before I started doing this work I had you know I'd already been in screen printing I have I've, I had another clothing line before this one it was mm-hmm. more sort of like tattoo industry based stuff um, okay. So I had had some previous experience before I, I started into this line. In a uh, art, in an article with the Globe and Mail in an interview, um, it said that a lot of your style and kind of advocacy work was a lot uh, inspired by the I Don't Know More movement. Could you, for listeners who don't know, could you talk about how that inspired you or what is I Don't Know More? 
Well, you know, Idle No More was a group of Indigenous women who started um, sort of, um, you know, started a movement really for, for Indigenous people across Canada. I mean, there's so many major issues that are are plaguing Indigenous communities that, you know, it was it was time for um, something something to be done about it, you know. And that, that was around, you know, I think we're going into five or six years ago now, roughly around there. Um, and that would have been right on the cusp of, of me dealing with like, uh, this, you know, life-changing traumatic experience I had. And, um, you know, I was just, I, you know, and, and simultaneously while I don't know more was kicking off, they were doing the elections for the AFN national chief, um, which is the assembly of first Nations. So that was being televised. Uh, I think on C-SPAN or one of those sort of political channels. And, you know, so I'm watching simultaneously mm-hmm. Idle No More and these protests that are happening all over the country and uh, uh, a chief from Attawapiskat going on a hung- hunger strike and uh, some other uh, community members going on hunger hunger strikes. And, you know, so I'm watching the election for national chief. I'm watching Idle No More. And... Prior to that, I'd been really disconnected from the Native community. It had been probably at least almost eight or nine years at least since I had actively participated in anything in the Native community. Prior to that, I was uh, quite heavily active in, in um, within you know, Indigenous Seder. Um, I went to the Centre for Indigenous Seder in Toronto. Didn't finish the program, but that was, um, um, you know, that... that with within that program, there was you know I was quite connected through through different channels in the indigenous community, but yeah, when you know you couple those two things with um, a traumatic experience, it sort of like just brought me back to going like holy shit, like you know there's blockades and protests happening all over the country, um, and then simultaneously when you I'm watching C-SPAN and I'm listening to these different chiefs. Um, running for national chief, um, talk about all the issues that are facing the community. And a lot of them I knew about, like it was, I would just, because I'm, it was in the tattoo industry and being so far removed from it, I had just sort of forgotten it. So it woke me up and you know, that it, it woke up a lot of young people. And I think that's where we are today is because of Bible no more. Unfortunately though, it's kind of died out a little bit. It's not, it doesn't have the, the um, same weight it carried when they started. It's sort of, um, sort of died out a bit. I you have so many projects. We could have like a couple episodes of this, yeah. but I think there's three that we wanted to really look at today. So the first one um, is the billboard. So one of the works that um, gained like a lot of attention was this billboard that you rented out on Spadina in Richmond, um, I think around like sometime last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, it said in like black and red bold letters, um, money received by First Nations are not tax dollars. It is paid from land and resources, uh, treaty annuities, interest payments from a federally controlled trust fund. Uh, could you explain kind of the inspiration uh, behind this billboard and what you were trying to kind of raise uh, to the conversation? Yeah, so um, if you recall um, last spring, uh, a gentleman by the name of Gerard Stanley was acquitted for the murder of Colton Bushy. And Mm -hmm. this was a young indigenous man who was shot in the back of the head and he was acquitted um, for murder. And he and wasn't held accountable uh, even for manslaughter or any other crime. Um, and, you know, I mean, that was hugely devastating for the Native community. I mean, like it, it, it was hugely traumatic for, for a lot of people. Um, and there's a um, radio show on CBC called Cross Country Checkup with Duncan McHugh, who's actually an Indigenous um, broadcaster or host. Um, and that Sunday, his show was talking about, you know, it's a call-in radio show and, uh, people call in and give their opinions about stuff. And that particular Sunday, it was, um, Duncan talking about, um, you know, what the country thought of this acquittal of Gerard Stanley. And 
I'm driving in my car and, you know, I just happen to like stumble upon it and I hear, you know, a few minutes and then, you know, he takes the next caller and this man who, you know, you can definitely assume he's an older, much older white man said, you know, well, you know, what we got to do is we got to stop using tax dollars to pay for these Indians. And we, we got to, you know, we got to, you know, they got to go get jobs and that way they could take care of their women. And he's kind of going off on this tangent. And I'm like, I'm yelling at the, at the radio, you yeah, know, yeah. In, in my car. And, you know, Duncan answers by saying, well, sir, you know, you just kind of made a, a bunch of generalized statements that aren't, that aren't really true. And, you know, and then the guy basically does it again. You know, he, he basically says the same statement, mm -hmm. but, you know, in a different, um, you know, I guess a different way of saying it. He essentially said the same thing. And again, Duncan answered by saying, well, sir, you know, you've just made a whole bunch of sort of generalized statements that aren't true. And so, you know, I'm, I'm yelling at the radio, I'm flipping out and I kind of go home and go, okay, well, you know, one of the largest misconceptions that I've always heard growing up is that indigenous people have it so easy with all these like handouts and that, you know, we can all go to school for free and we get all of these things for free. Um, when, and, and at the end of the day, we don't get anything for free. It's not free. Mm -hmm. It's actually everything that's, um, comes any, any monies that indigenous communities receive come from several places, but none of it comes from tax dollars. And that was his point is we got to stop using tax dollars to pay for these Indians. Mm -hmm. And so when you understand why people believe the money comes from tax dollars, it's completely tied to language and institutional racism through that language is all, all connected. So it actually took me around three weeks to actually myself um, get to the bottom of where exactly does the money come from. So I spoke to a, a chief on my reserve. Um, I spoke to... Um, at the time, the AFN uh, chief of Ontario, I spoke to the chief of uh, AFN chief of Quebec, I spoke to an MP, an Indigenous MP, and they all sort of gave me similar answers, um, but it was really not a clear direct answer. But at the end of the day, it, none of it comes from tax dollars. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was really important that to go and really just dispel this myth, because when you think about the systemic racism that indigenous people face it's a lot of it is this resentment towards um people thinking that we're a burden on the canadian tax public's dollars right and so you know that's that's really essentially what, what that was about but i also on the bottom of that i used the hashtag hashtag not funding and really for a specific reason because um, literally while I was doing that research, the federal government, uh, I heard on CBC, had, they had come out and released the new federal government's um, budget for the year. And so when they started talking about that, they were saying, well, we're going to increase funding for First Nations education. We're going to increase funding for child welfare, etc. So using this word funding gives this perception to the, to the Canadian public that these are tax dollars being used. And they're and they're not tax dollars. So, you know, I thought it was important to use the hashtag not hashtag not funding because, you know, when you when you then understand that the money comes from land and resources, treaty annuities, it comes from the, a federally controlled trust fund that's worth in the range of like three to six trillion dollars, and that any money that communities received. Um, comes from any number of those places, but not from the tax, not not from tax dollars. Um, in 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 the place of like that word funding, what kind of language would you kind of prefer? Well, yeah, I was that was you know part of part of the conversation I had with with uh, my you know with the people who I taught I was I had previously talked to about trying to figure out where exactly it came from. And, you know, we we struggled ourselves a little bit. Um, with it because prior to calling it funding um it was for for many years it was called indian money um but i don't know we were, we thought okay maybe shareholder payments or dividends or something like that um but removing the attachment to it being funding because 
you know, I had a I had an art show several years ago in a gallery over on Queen West, and it was like a community gallery. So basically, I had to be there every day to run it. It wasn't there was no one there mm-hmm. besides me. So I'd have a lot of groups come in, and I and I throughout that month I was there, I had several school children come in, and. You know, I'd already been exploring that conversation of, about, about the word funding, and I would ask them, so what does the word funding mean to you? Like, give me, tell me the definition. When you hear someone saying, we're going to increase funding or we're going to decrease funding for um, Indigenous education or et cetera, something like that, what does that mean? And they all right away associated that with, like, a handout, like you're giving us something, like you're, you know... Um, and, and it wasn't even just the school children. I, I like that whole month. I asked so many people the same thing, and every time I got the same answer that it was associated with a handout. Another work that we I wanted to talk about was, um, I guess like one website that you've or one like I guess uh, campaign called Reclaim Indigenous Art. Um, Reclaim Indigenous Art was an awareness campaign and a call to action. So could you talk about what you were trying to bring awareness to and uh, what um, was the call to action? So that website was kind of created under uh, for for multiple reasons. Um, I'm not sure if, uh, I, I, I believe most of Toronto will kind of know about the story about a young wo- local woman who was, uh, knocking off Norvell Morso's work, uh, who's, you know, Norvell Morso is, uh, an indigenous artist and probably one of Canada's most famous indigenous artists. He's a hero to a lot of the indigenous community and, uh, especially the arts community. So this young woman was knocking off his work. And I was one of the artists who kind of uh, brought light to that. Um, and I ended up doing several interviews with CBC. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to sit down with her uh, and explain to her why what she was doing was inappropriate. And it was um, it was a really frustrating process um, of that. Um, she didn't get it. She didn't care. She wasn't interested. Um, there's a, you know, there, there's a lot of, reasons um people like her believe that it's okay to knock off indigenous arts and so like going forward i just start you know after after i left left her after the, um the interview you know we actually sat in the green room together for about 20 minutes and i tried to reiterate everything to her and she was quite frustrated because i kept saying the same things over and over and i was like well you know i'm saying the same things over and over because you knocking off an indigenous artist's work is is wrong for these reasons and you have to like look at it from our perspective and understand it from our perspective and in the end she didn't get it um so i walked away from that just feeling like really disheartened and really frustrated because the way that story was presented was i i was also opened up to a lot of ridicule and hate mail i mean i i got about 50 pieces of hate mail sent to me because of that conversation with her really yeah, I mean, and some really people saying crazy stuff like, you know, I hope you get stabbed to death in the street. People accuse me of cultural appropriation. They accuse me of being jealous of her work. I mean, like the, the, literally 50 pieces of hate mail. And then, you know, months later, I, I heard about this other folder on Facebook. And, and it was the same thing. I got like all kinds of message sent to me on Facebook of the same thing. Um but it really made me think and it really made me think about um, like why would someone like her feel that it's okay to go and do this when the, when the community is telling you this is wrong and why it's wrong? Why would you continue to do it? And why wouldn't you continue to respect the people whose work you're say you're doing because you respect so much? Um, so I kind of dug deeper into that whole um I guess exploring that whole, the whole ideas behind that. And it led me to a conversation with uh, Nadine St. Louis, who I actually um, did the uh, created the website with. So Nadine is a um, 
she's a indigenous woman from Montreal who has a gallery there. It's um, uh, what would be called a cultural incubator. So what she does is she supports indigenous artists. She buys um, craft work and artwork from artists at fair market value and then resells it in her space. But surrounding Nadine's gallery in old Montreal are all these other little galleries and gift shops that are selling uh, knockoff indigenous arts and crafts. So, you know, I called her up and said, you know, I have this idea about opening a gallery in Toronto and showcasing just indigenous art so we can really, so I can really sort of push uh, the public into understanding, you know, the difference between knockoff and um, supporting authentic indigenous arts. And that ended up being like a two hour conversation with her and where she explained all the pitfalls that she goes through having her space in, in Montreal. Um, and yeah, it just was like, you know, the more and more I learned from her and what she told me about it really, it really pissed me off because, you know, I'm, you know, my work is very far removed from traditional indigenous arts, but a lot of my friends and peers are creating that work and they're creating those, um, uh, the other crafts as well, but their work is being undermined by the knockoff market that comes from overseas. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that also ties into to uh, the young woman in, in Toronto, who I don't like to say her name. I don't like to no, give yeah. her any. Let's not say her name. There's no need to. Um, but, you know, when you think about why she is okay doing that, it's because a precedent has been set in Canada and the United States for, you know, we don't even know how long, for, you know, 50 years at least, that it's okay to knock off Indigenous arts and crafts. Because if you're to take a walk through Chinatown right now, you're going to find shelves full of all this kitschy shit that's brought in from overseas mm -hmm. and it's the same pitfalls that nadine faces how does her gallery is able to sell say a dream catcher made um by indigenous artists who has gone and harvested the red willow who has harvested the sinew who has harvested the 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 feathers who has um harvested the stones and then taken the time and effort and the love to create it um, how does that artist compete with something that's coming from overseas when mm -hmm. they're bought for, you know, a buck or two bucks and they're sold for 25 bucks and they're really big? How does she compete with that when they're going, you know, these people are coming into her gallery, have gone next door and they say, well, this huge one is $25 and it's plastic beads, it's faux feathers, it's probably cow rawhide wrapping it, there's metal in it. Um, the consumer doesn't really know the difference. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was the, the whole thing was, in talking to her was like, okay, we got to do something about this. You know, I'm, I have some skills creating websites. So I it's like, you know, I can create us a website. I can, you know, we can start educating the public on what the, the, the issues are with, with the knockoff market. And um, yeah, I guess in that conversation as well. I mean, she educated me a shitload on, on a lot of statistics because her as a gallery owner to set up that business, I mean, she did a business plan. She, she studied the market to see if what she was doing would be viable. And in her market study, she found that 70% or so of indigenous people in Canada support themselves through some form of arts. Mm -hmm. And that includes 70%. It's our largest independent economy. So, um, you know, and that that's from a wide range of arts from from music, film, television, writers, um, our, our artists, painters, sculptors, uh, stone carvers, um, wood carvers to and then all the all and then all the craftspeople from moccasin makers to the dreamcatcher makers to the beadwork to, you know, the whole host of traditional indigenous arts and crafts that are made. It, it is, it's our number one independent economy away from any sort of like large, uh, like large industry. I did not know that. That's, that's really, it's, it's huge, right? <laughs> 70%. So, so when you, when you look at the knockoff market and you look at how that affects our, our largest independent economy, we're being undermined and we're being, and, and our work is being devalued by the international market. Um, and, you know, knowing that 70% of Indigenous people support themselves through some form of arts and a large proportion of those people are women and youth. So, you know, even outside of the Indigenous community, women and youth um, face the most uh, difficulty in the job market. 
um, women being not paid um, the same as uh, their male counterparts and youth always underpaid and struggle to find work. If let's say that the person who, who did, um, I guess, copy, um, let's say that she was willing to understand how would you, and she was like, she had an open year and, or let's say even like an artist was wanting to learn more about um, indigenous art and wanted to pay tribute to it in some way. Like, is that, what would you say to them? Like, what would you try to like inform them about like how, like what's like an appropriate respectful way that that person could have conducted themselves instead? I I think now, you know, in, in retrospect, there was something that I hadn't, you know, really, at the time in dealing with her, I, we, I hadn't come to the point yet where I understood the economics behind it, because that's what really what it comes down to is the economics. She was doing this work um, and it was plagiarism is at the same time. So that that's mm-hmm. problematic for any artist is just knocking off other people's work. But, um, you know, just to touch really quickly too on it is also the work that she was doing is she was she would take a piece of Norval Morso's work and then she would only change it by say maybe 10%. Um, and then what she would do is below that piece of artwork, she would write some hokey bullshit story that would say go with that work. And that was what Norvell did. He would do the work and then he would have a description below it. And what I had explained to her is that our educators and young people are looking back at Norvell Morso's work as a way of reconnecting with our culture, reconnecting with uh, Anishinaabe and, and Ojibwe culture. And our educators are using that also to teach youth and, and, and elders and, and older people who have gone through residential school have lost their connection to the community. Um, so there, that, that, you know, that was part of why it was problematic. And I explained that to her, but, you know, at the time I didn't really understand the economics portion of it because at the end of the day, the economics behind it is that she's selling those works. So she's taking work away from an indigenous artist um, who is trying to reconnect with their, with their culture and their language and their heritage. And, you know, that's harmful because um, another statistic that came out of Nadine's study was that uh, indigenous artists in Canada are paid 30 to 40% less than our non-Indigenous counterparts as artists. And the reason that is, if our conclusion to that reason is, is because of the knockoff market. Mm-hmm. Because our work's been so devalued by everything coming from in from overseas that people don't see the same value uh, in our work because it's been, it's been made so cheap mm-hmm. for so long. And sorry, the call to action. Um, I believe I was looking on the website at the very bottom, there's letters that you've kind of already prepared. Could you talk about that? Yeah, so part of, part of the website was to educate people about what cultural appropriation was, who it hurts, how it's harmful, um, why you shouldn't do it, and then how to support Indigenous artists. But I also thought, you know, having calls to action and have people participate um, is important so that it helps us move our cause forward. And, and the calls to action, uh, the three of them are, the first one is... Um, well, the way I've set up the calls to action, whereas you basically, you click on the call to action button, um, it opens a PDF and you print the PDF and then you and then you mail it to the appropriate place. So the first one is a letter that goes to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and it's calling on the Trudeau government to uh, implement the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, and specifically Article 11 and 31. Um, and Article 11 and 31, um, they're just connected to... Um, our arts and, and all facets of our arts, including writing and et cetera. Um, but that call to action um, is that by implementing the UN's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, it actually gives us protection over our arts and crafts. So people like her mm-hmm. knocking off Norvell Morsel's work can be held accountable for it. But it also, the most important one, is stopping the importation of all of this knockoff arts and crafts that's coming from overseas. So basically you just like fill it out, you date it, sign it and send it in. And, you know, just for your listeners to know that sending a letter to uh, the prime minister is free. You don't need a Mm -hmm. stamp. Um, You just take it to the post office and and they, and they send it off for free. Okay. We will have a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, And then, yeah, mm -hmm. I can tell you the other, the other two calls to action. So the other one is, um, 
I don't recall if you know about the shark fin soup ban that um, you, if you've ever heard about it. If you, I've heard of it, yeah. but I did not read that part on the on the website. So in in Toronto, there was uh, an outcry a few years back about. Uh, the selling of shark fin soup. There's a documentary that came out that just highlighted how horrific it was that they were just basically catching these shark and uh, cutting off the fin and throwing the shark in, into the water. And, um, you know, it was super br- brutal. And it really, if you know, it really affected people in a way that they, you know, called on the city of Toronto to ban the sale of shark fin soup. So um, it took a couple years for it to actually happen but they were able to make it happen. And um, the way, uh, you know, the idea with that was is that we want to have the city of Toronto make a, um, uh, put a bylaw in place that bans the sale of shark fin soup. And, uh, you know, we figure if, you know, public outcry can have a bylaw put in place that bans the sale of shark fin soup we can do the same thing with knockoff indigenous arts and craft so that um that call to action is a letter that we want you to send into your local city council not just toronto every city wherever you live to send that letter in um you, you know you you put it your name you date it and sign it and then we're asking that you would they would put a bylaw in place that would ban that and then the hope is to have it start on like locally and then hopefully provincially and then hopefully hopefully uh, federally and then and then the last call to action is one if you're ever traveling and you go into a gift shop in a gallery or a store and you see any sort of you know knock off indigenous arts and it's usually pretty easy to tell when they are coming from you know overseas or you can see how cheaply made they are um you can go onto the website and print out that PDF, date it, sign it, and let them know, dear such and such store, on this date I saw you were selling these uh, particular knockoff Indigenous arts or craft. Here's why it's inappropriate. Here's how you can support Indigenous artists. So it's also about not um, not creating enemies with small business or business that are selling it we see them as possible allies because if they they they're selling those things because they believe there's a market for it um but we're just asking that you'll you'll buy authentic direct from indigenous artists rather than the knockoff market One more um, project that you were working on that um, was featured in this like amazing documentary series um, called Skindigenous, uh, which dives into different unique indigenous cultures to examine the history and culture um, of that tattoo art uh, per every episode. Um, in one part um, of the episode that you were featured in, you glued prosthetic blotches on your face, you wore a Hudson's Bay blanket, and a sign that says, um, that's all it costs when you shop at the Bay. And then you stood in front of the Hudson's Bay Christmas decorations. I think it's on Queen Street. Yeah, Queen and, Queen and Young. Queen and Young. And um, you started talking to people. Um, what was the inspiration for that piece? Because I think that was one of like the most one of the pieces that aren't as well known, but also like the projects, but also is also one of the most provocative ones. I thought. Um. So yeah, I mean the that that um. I guess you would call it a performance piece is, you know, I have a background in theater. That's where I, you know, originally started as an artist. Um, my goals actually were always to be, uh, to work in film and television as an actor and hopefully a director one day. And I sort of got sidelined. Um, but anyway, that, that performance piece was about, I don't even know how I, how, how I had thought it up. I think I was driving with a friend of mine who is a, who's a, a performer and we just got talking about different ideas that we had and you know that had something that I'd sort of been thinking about for a while about you know what would that look like um, and just to reiterate or just to kind of correct you on what those blotches were it was actually a, what I did is I replicated um, I had a um, a makeup artist who works in film and television create me prosthetics that were to replicate uh, smallpox and so 
Um, it's funny that you saw that, on, you know, seeing that on Skindigenous, unfortunately, I don't know if you've, if you watched the whole, my whole episode, but mm -hmm. they did a disclaimer at the beginning of my episode and at the end of my episode, which they didn't do on any other episodes from the series. Yeah. Uh, and specifically mine is that, you know, they didn't, their, their lawyers said they didn't want, they had to make sure that they had no connection to that. Um, because they were worried that they could be held liable and sued for uh, it. So I, we could take that out. <laughs> no, no, it's or... okay. No, no, definitely. Um, but um, that's why that's why the disclaimer was there that was right. put on. But mm -hmm. what also happened was because of that disclaimer, the context behind why I created the piece was also removed. So you just saw me getting prosthetics on. You saw me going down there. And it wasn't really, you know, as far as the storyteller goes, it wasn't like a clear... Um, there wasn't really a clear like story that was happening. It kind of left viewers going, okay. I, I mean, some like most indigenous people kind of got it, but it was the non-indigenous people w wouldn't really get it. But so the idea was essentially that when you think about a company like Hudson's Bay, um, who exploited indigenous people for many, many, many decades in Canada and when you think about the exploitation that happened to indigenous people, the exploitation of animals, um, the exploitation of our women, um, which I can get into a, a bit after, um, the, and, and then understanding the connection between uh, General, uh, was it General Amherst and, the, and, and smallpox on blankets. So that actually happened. There's been a huge denial that it never happened. He had written about it previous to it happening, and then lo and behold, it happened. Um, and Hudson's Bay blankets were the blankets that were used to spread smallpox. And so, you know, I just thought it'd be interesting as a performance piece to go down there with with the you know covered in smallpox with mm -hmm. the hudson's bay blanket and and i actually had several signs so i would change out between the signs oh, okay yeah um and it, and it was weird because people thought i was just like possibly a really ugly homeless guy mm -hmm. and that's what you know that's the, a lot of the reactions i got and then it was one it was also two is like really cold and it was just before christmas yeah and they, they they were down there on a whole other level of just like wanting to get pictures of the window dis the Christmas window displays and um so yeah it was it was a really weird experience and I, I didn't really go to how I thought it would go um and my friend who's a performance said you know you need to do it probably several more times to really see see where it can take you it's not like a one-off sort of thing and you should probably try to include other people to come down and maybe be surrounding you and grieving um. But, you know, the huts, you know, and then that, that one side uh, sign I used that said, that's all it costs when you shop at the Bay. You guys are probably too young to know, but there was a uh, old radio ads and that was one of their slogans was that's all quality costs when you shop at the Bay. Yeah. I've never heard that before. And, <laughs> and then the other jingle was, was um, that's all it costs when you shop at the Bay. So like they were trying to say like, we're super quality, but we, you know, it's cheap and you know affordable. So I, you know, that, but that was the sort of meaning behind that one song. It was like, you know, that's all it costs when you shop at the Bay. You know, the, the cost is the exploitation of indigenous people, the exploitation of the land. Um, and, you know, there's a long, long history of that of happening in Canada. And part of what I explained in, in, on uh, Indigenous was that um, back, in, uh, back when uh, European settlers first arrived and the Hudson's Bay had the trappers out there, you know, um, they were encouraged to take up uh, Indigenous wives um, and they called it a country marriage. So, it, um, you know, the, they would they would have uh, children with Indigenous women and they'd have these sort of like, you know, marriages to the Indigenous, to Indigenous women. But when they started bringing over uh, European white settler women, they, the Hudson's Bay instructed the trappers and the men to abandon their Indigenous wives. And many times what happened was, is um, the children were kidnapped. Sometimes they were killed and taken away from, from um, 
the, the woman. Sometimes they were killed. Sometimes they were both killed. Sometimes they were just completely abandoned. Some were taken, uh, the, some of the children were taken to, back to Europe. Um, and in uh, many cases, ha what happened is the, the women would also be uh, sometimes ostracized from their own community for taking up uh, with a white man. So, you know, there's a long history with this company of exploitation and, and that connection to uh, indigenous women even um, really comes into where we are today with resource extraction. When, when you hear about missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, a lot of the cases um, of missing and murdered women and girls are tied to uh, man camps. And these man camps are going into communities where they're setting up oil rigs or, or, or uh, logging, etc. And there always seems to be a high number of women going missing because there's, um, you know, you think about those men, uh, uh, you know, perpetrating these crimes, They've been led by generations from their father, their grandfather, and people before them of exploitation of indigenous women, exploitation of the land. So um, there, there's a, you know, I believe there's a connection to that. And I, you know, when you think about a company like the Hudson's Bay, where they are today and, and where indigenous people are today, right? Mm -hmm. There's a, it's a huge disproportion on, on equality and economic equality, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, you know, I thought it would just be interesting to go down there and see people's reactions. And yeah, like I said, it, it didn't go right, but I'll try again. Yeah. Um, maybe when it's a little bit less cold. Yeah. But yeah. was there any like, because I remember in the in the video you were uh, talking to people. Was there one interaction that kind of stood out for you? Um, I mean, on, honestly, man, I hate, I hate like film stuff and television stuff yeah. sometimes just the way it's edited because i felt there was possibly maybe better stuff that could have been used mm -hmm. um and you know you don't have any control over how it's edited but i mean what they did show i think my interaction with the with the uh mother and the young girl um and it was funny too they 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 had to subtitle a few of what i was saying because it was talking maybe a little low mm -hmm. and uh said i think i said something like do you, you know she asked if i wanted some food or something like that i said well do you have any land mm -hmm. and they they translated as lend <laughs> and i was like no i don't know how they got that wrong but mm -hmm. um you know it was interesting to for, for people people to understand you know the you know where indigenous people are into relation of loss of land uh where we are in relation to uh, shared resources of Canada. You know, Canada's a rich country because of all of the land and resources Indigenous people are in the position we're in because of the loss in land and not to the share, um, the, the fair share to the resources. Um, you know, I th and I, you know, I think if I do it again, I'll, I'll, you know, you can look at it and try to correct some of the things you'd want to maybe tell a better story. But also, like I said, I was limited to them having to edit it to not be too liable right um in that episode um near the end uh you said that the revolution will be indigenized and you also have that um on some t-shirts on some hats um and i kind of interpret that as like a very powerful phrase um but i was wondering if you could explain that a little bit so i think you know when you when you think about revolutions in general uh, around that that have happened around the world you know changes come from the will of the people it never comes from politicians who represent you or say they represent you it comes from the people and if you look back at five six years ago at the beginning of idle no more you know that that's the beginning of a revolution because you know you were as that was kicking off we were only a few years if that into the whole social media um i guess the the power, people understanding the power of social media and how to how to exchange ideas, how to exchange stories, how to keep in contact, how to mobilize. And so, you know, you see that happening now. You see Indigenous people mobilizing. You see Indigenous people um, coming together and working together. You see Indigenous people sharing stories, sharing experiences. And so, um, you know, that's that's the making of a revolution coming and then you know you don't 
I, I don't want people to think that a revolution means violence or huge disruption or or anything um, that will really harm. I mean, you know, there there can be a, a you know, it can also, I guess, mean even just a cultural shift because you have someone like David Suzuki, who's on the side of indigenous um, uh, environmentalists saying, you know, if, if we really want to see change in Canada uh, for the environment, we need to start following what the indigenous people have been saying forever is to respect the land, um, only take out resources of what you need to survive, respecting animals. Um, respecting nature in, in, in all ways. And, you know, that's, that's revolutionary to hear, man. Like a man, I've, I've, I've watched the nature of things growing up my whole life. And like, you hear a man like that saying he's on the side of indigenous people. That's to me, revolutionary. And, you know, that's saying, you know, this revolution that we're going through environmentally, socially, um, even is, is being indigenized. They're take, they're now looking at our ways of life, um, and it's, it's, uh, being taken a little more, uh, seriously and, and being looked at in a different way because indigenous people are responsible for a lot of the modern medicines that exist today are based on our medicines. And I mean, there's countless things that indigenous people are responsible for, but don't get credit for. Um, so I think we're, you know, that's part of the revolution is now, now giving us that space to have the voice. Uh, to be credited for our work, be credited for our contributions, um, but also just inspire non-indigenous people um, to to come together and, and include themselves in what we're what you know what we're doing. Is there anything else you want to that you want to say to the listeners? We usually have like a little little bit. If you have like anything you want to say. Um, I guess I just like to close by saying if, you know, you do take the time to go check out reclaimindigenousarts.com that you participate in the calls to action. Um, I think it's hugely important that we get as much support as possible um, when it comes to the protection of indigenous arts and crafts. Um, you know, we need, we, we need non-indigenous Canada to get behind us with this. So I, you know, I encourage people to, to do that. and. Um, I guess too, if you're you're interested in following my work, you can you can check me out on on Instagram at chipwar.com, or sorry, my website at chipwar.com and on Instagram at chipwar. Postal Chronicles is hosted and produced by me, Matt Falk. Alice Coombs was the co-producer for this episode. Our staff includes Rostislav Soroka and Kusun Magadera. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for the Day by Loyalty Freak Music, and there are other music credits on our website. If you like what you heard, give us a rating, share us, follow us on our social medias. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon.